Welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we're continuing with our reading of The Wretched of the Earth. We are still in the first chapter, and we will not yet be finishing it today, as it's quite a lengthy one. Last week's reading introduced some thoughts about colonialism, and the ways in which that the people who have been colonized are changed by that process, and then begin to think in the manner of the colonizers. I will probably have some thoughts once I finish the whole section, but for the moment, let's continue reading this chapter. We have said that the colonial context is characterized by the dichotomy which it imposes upon the whole people. Decolonization unifies that people by the radical decision to remove from it its heterogeneity, and by unifying it on a rational, sometimes a racial, basis. We know the fierce words of the Senegalese patriots, referring to the maneuvers of their present Senghor. Quote, we have demanded that the higher posts should be given to Africans, and that Senghor is Africanizing the Europeans. End quote. That is to say, that the native can see clearly and immediately if decolonization has come to pass or not, for his minimum demands are simply that the last shall be first. But the native intellectuals bring variance to this petition, and in fact, he seems to have good reasons. Higher civil servants, technicians, specialists, all seem to be needed. Now, the ordinary native interprets these unfair promotions as so many acts of sabotage, and he is often heard to declare, it wasn't worth our while then, our becoming independent. In the colonial countries where our real struggle for freedom has taken place, where the blood of the people has flowed and where the length of the period of armed warfare has favored the backward surge of intellectuals toward bases grounded in the people, we can observe a genuine eradication of the superstructure built by these intellectuals from the bourgeois colonialist environment. The colonialist bourgeoisie, in its narcissistic dialogue, expounded by the members of its universities, had in fact deeply implanted in the minds of the colonized intellectual that the essential qualities remain eternal in spite of all the blunders men may make. The essential qualities of the West, of course. The native intellectual accepted the cogency of these ideas, and deep down in his brain, you could always find a vigilant sentinel ready to defend the Greco-Latin pedestal. Now it so happens that during the struggle for liberation, at the moment that the native intellectual comes into touch again with his people, this artificial sentinel is turned into dust. All the Mediterranean values, the triumph of the human individual, of clarity, and of beauty, become lifeless, colorless knickknacks. All those speeches seem like collections of dead words. Those values which seem to uplift the soul are revealed as worthless, simply because they have nothing to do with the concrete conflict in which the people is engaged. Individualism is the first to disappear. The native intellectual had learned from his masters that the individual ought to express himself fully. The colonialist bourgeoisie had hammered into the native's mind the idea of a society of individuals where each person shuts himself up in his own subjectivity, and whose only wealth is individual thought. Now the native, who has the opportunity to return to the people during the struggle for freedom, will discover the falseness of this theory. The very forms of organization of the struggle will suggest to him a different vocabulary. Brother, sister, friend. These are words outlawed by the colonialist bourgeoisie, because for them my brother is my purse, 
My friend is part of my scheme for getting on. The native intellectual takes part in a sort of otta de fe, in the destruction of all his idols. Egoism, recrimination that springs from pride, and the childish stupidity of those who always want to have the last word. Such a colonized intellectual, dusted over by colonial culture, will in the same way discover the substance of village assemblies, the cohesion of people's committees, and the extraordinary fruitfulness of local meetings and groupments. Henceforth, the interests of one will be the interests of all, for in concrete fact, everyone will be discovered by the troops, everyone will be massacred, or everyone will be saved. The motto, look out for yourself, the atheist's method of salvation, is in this context forbidden. Self-criticism has been much talked about of late, but few people realize that it is an African institution. Whether in the Gemas footnote three, of Northern Africa, or in the meetings of Western Africa, tradition demands that the quarrels which occur in a village should be settled in public. It is communal self-criticism, of course, and with a note of humor, because everybody is relaxed, and because in the last resort, we all want the same things. But the more the intellectual imbibes the atmosphere of the people, the more completely he abandons the habits of calculation, of unwanted silence, of mental reservations, and shakes off the spirit of concealment. And it is true that already at that level, we can say that the community triumphs, and that it spreads its own light and its own reason. But it so happens sometimes that decolonization occurs in areas which have not been sufficiently shaken by the struggle for liberation, and there may be found those same know-all, smart, wily intellectuals. We find intact in them the manners and forms of thought picked up during their association with the colonialist bourgeoisie, spoilt children of yesterday's colonialism and of today's national governments. They organize the loot of whatever national resources exist. Without pity, they use today's national distress as a means of getting on through scheming and legal robbery, by import-export combines, limited liability companies, gambling on the stock exchange, or unfair promotion. They are insistent in their demands for the nationalization of commerce, that is to say, the reservation of markets and advantageous bargains for nationals only. As far as doctrine is concerned, they proclaim the pressing necessity of nationalizing the robbery of the nation. In this arid phase of national life, the so-called period of austerity, the success of their depredations is swift to call forth the violence and anger of the people. For this same people, poverty-stricken yet independent, comes very quickly to possess a social conscience in the African and international context of today, and this the petty individualists will quickly learn. In order to assimilate and to experience the, the oppressor's culture, the native has had to leave certain of his intellectual possessions in pawn. These pledges include his adoption of the forms of thought of the colonialist bourgeoisie. This is very noticeable in the inaptitude of the native intellectual to carry on a two-sided discussion, for he cannot eliminate himself when confronted with an object or an idea. On the other hand, when once he begins to militate among the people, he is struck with wonder and amazement. He is literally disarmed by their good faith and honesty. 
The danger that will haunt him continually is that of becoming the uncritical mouthpiece of the masses. He becomes a kind of yes-man who nods assent at every word coming from the people, which he interprets as considered judgments. Now, the fella, the unemployed man, the starving native, do not lay a claim to the truth. They do not say that they represent the truth, for they are the truth. Objectively, the intellectual behaves in this phase like a common opportunist. In fact, he has not stopped maneuvering. There is never any question of his being either rejected or welcomed by the people. What they ask is simply that all resources should be pooled. The inclusion of the native intellectual in the upward surge of the masses will in this case be differentiated by a curious cult of detail. That is not to say that the people are hostile to analysis. On the contrary, they like having things explained to them, and they are glad to understand the line of argument, and they like to see where they are going. But at the beginning of his association with the people, the native intellectual overstresses details, and thereby comes to forget that the defeat of colonialism is the real object of the struggle. Carried away by the multitudinous aspects of the fight, he tends to concentrate on local tasks, performed with enthusiasm, but almost always too solemnly. He fails to see the whole of the movement all the time. He introduces the idea of special disciplines, of specialized functions, of departments within the terrible stone crusher, the fierce mixing machine, which a popular revolution is. He is occupied in action on a particular front, and it so happens that he loses sight of the unity of the movement. Thus, if a local defeat is inflicted, he may well be drawn into doubt, and from thence to despair. The people, on the other hand, take their stand from the start on the broad and inclusive positions of bread and the land. How can we obtain the land and bread to eat? And this obstinate point of view of the masses, which may seem shrunken and limited, is in the end the most worthwhile and the most efficient mode of procedure. The problem of truth ought also to be considered. In every age, among the people, truth is the property of the national cause. No absolute verity, no discourse on the purity of the soul, can shake this position. The native replies to the living lie of the colonial situation by an equal falsehood. His dealings with his fellow nationals are open. They are strained and incomprehensible with regard to the settlers. Truth is that which hurries on the breakup of the colonialist regime. It is that which promotes the emergence of the nation. It is all that protects the natives and ruins the foreigners. In this colonialist context, there is no truthful behavior, and the good is quite simply that which is evil for them. Thus we see that the primary Manichaeism which governed colonial society is preserved intact during the period of decolonization. That is to say that the settler never ceases to be the enemy, the opponent, the foe that must be overthrown. The oppressor, in his own sphere, starts the process, a process of domination, of exploitation, and of pillage, and in the other sphere, the coiled, plundered creature, which is the native, provides fodder for the process as best he can, the process which moves uninterruptedly from the banks of the colonial territory to the palaces and the docks of the mother country. In this becalmed zone, the sea has a smooth surface. The palm tree stirs gently in the breeze, the waves lap against the pebbles, and the raw materials are ceaselessly transported, justifying the presence of the settler. 
and all the while the native, bent double, more dead than alive, exists interminably in an unchanging dream. The settler makes history. His life is an epoch, an odyssey. He is the absolute beginning. This land was created by us. He is the unceasing cause. If we leave, all is lost, and the country will go back to the Middle Ages. Over against him, torpid creatures, wasted by fevers, obsessed by ancestral customs, form an almost inorganic background for the innovating dynamism of colonial mercantilism. The settler makes history and is conscious of making it, and because he constantly refers to the history of his mother country, he clearly indicates that he himself is the extension of that mother country. Thus, the history which he writes is not the history of the country which he plunders, but the history of his own nation in regard to all that she skims off, all that she violates and starves. The immobility to which the native is condemned can only be called in question if the native decides to put an end to the history of colonization, the history of pillage, and to bring into existence the history of the nation, the history of decolonization. A world divided into compartments, a motionless, manichaeistic world, a world of statues, the statue of the general who carried out the conquest, the statue of the engineer who built the bridge, a world which is sure of itself, which crushes with its stones the backs flayed by whips. This is the colonial world. The native is a being hemmed in. Apartheid is simply one form of the division into compartments of the colonial world. The first thing which the native learns is to stay in his place, and not to go beyond certain limits. This is why the dreams of the native are always of muscular prowess. His dreams are of action and of aggression. I dream I am jumping, swimming, running, climbing. I dream that I burst out laughing, that I span a river in one stride, or that I am followed by a flood of motor cars, which never catch up with me. During the period of colonization, the native never stops achieving his freedom from nine in the evening until six in the morning. The colonized man will first manifest this aggressiveness which has been deposited in his bones against his own people. This is the period when the n-words beat each other up and the police and magistrates do not know which way to turn when faced with the astonishing waves of crime in North Africa. We shall see later how this phenomenon should be judged. Footnote 4 When the native is confronted with the colonial order of things, he finds that he is in a state of permanent tension. The settler's world is a hostile world which spurns the native, but at the same time it is a world of which he is envious. We have seen that the native never ceases to dream of putting himself in the place of the settler, not of becoming the settler, but of substituting himself for the settler. This hostile world, ponderous and aggressive because it fends off the colonized masses with all the harshness it is capable of, represents not merely a hell from which the swiftest flight possible is desirable, but also a paradise close at hand, which is guarded by terrible watchdogs. The native is always on the alert, for since he can only make out with difficulty the many symbols of the colonial world, he is never sure whether or not he has crossed the frontier. 
Confronted with a world ruled by the settler, the native is always presumed guilty. But the native's guilt is never a guilt which he accepts. It is rather a kind of curse, a sort of sword of Damocles. For, in his innermost spirit, the native admits no accusation. He is overpowered but not tamed. He is treated as an inferior, but he is not convinced of his inferiority. He is patiently waiting until the settler is off his guard to fly at him. The native's muscles are always tensed. You can't say that he is terrorized or even apprehensive. He is in fact ready at a moment's notice to exchange the role of the quarry for that of the hunter. The native is an oppressed person whose permanent dream is to become the persecutor. The symbols of social order, the police, the bugle calls in the barracks, military parades and the waving flags, are at one and the same inhibitory and stimulating, for they do not convey the message, don't dare to budge, rather they cry out, get ready to attack. And in fact, if the native had any tendency to fall asleep and to forget, the settler's hauteur and the settler's anxiety to test the strength of the colonial system would remind him at every turn that the great showdown cannot be put off indefinitely. That impulse to take the settler's place implies a tonicity of muscles the whole time. And in fact, we know that in certain emotional conditions, the presence of an obstacle accentuates the tendency toward motion. The settler-native relationship is a mass relationship. The settler pits brute force against the weight of numbers. He is an exhibitionist. His preoccupation with security makes him remind the native out loud that there he alone is master. The settler keeps alive in the native an anger which he deprives of outlet. The native is trapped in the tight links of the chains of colonialism. But we have seen that inwardly the settler can only achieve a pseudo-petrification. The native's muscular tension finds outlet regularly in bloodthirsty explosions, in tribal warfare, in feuds between septs, and in quarrels between individuals. Where individuals are concerned, a positive negation of common sense is evident. While the settler or the policeman has the right the live-long day to strike the native, to insult him and to make him crawl to them, you will see the native reaching for his knife at the slightest hostile or aggressive glance cast on him by another native, for the last resort of the native is to defend his personality vis-a-vis -vis his brother. Tribal feuds only serve to perpetuate old grudges buried deep in the memory. By throwing himself with all his force into the vendetta, the native tries to persuade himself that colonialism does not exist, that everything is going on as before, that history continues. Here on the level of communal organizations, we clearly discern the well-known behavior patterns of avoidance. It is as if plunging into a fraternal bloodbath allowed them to ignore the obstacle and to put off till later the choice, nevertheless inevitable, which opens up the question of armed resistance to colonialism. Thus, Collective auto-destruction in a very concrete form is one of the ways in which the native's muscular tension is set free. All these patterns of conduct are those of the death reflex when faced with danger, a suicidal behavior which proves to the settler, whose existence and domination is by them all the more justified, that these men are not reasonable human beings. In the same way, the native manages to bypass the settler. A belief in fatality removes all blame from the oppressor. 
the cause of misfortunes and all poverty is attributed to God. He is fate. In this way, the individual accepts the disintegration ordained by God, bows down before the settler and his lot, and by a kind of interior restabilization, acquires a stony calm. Meanwhile, however, life goes on, and the native will strengthen the inhibitions which contain his aggressiveness by drawing on the terrifying myths which are so frequently found in underdeveloped communities. There are maleficent spirits which intervene every time a step is taken in the wrong direction. Leopard men, serpent men, six-legged dogs, zombies, a whole series of tiny animals or giants which create around the native a world of prohibitions, of barriers, and of inhibitions far more terrifying than the world of the settler. This magical superstructure which permeates the native society fulfills certain well-defined functions in the dynamism of the libido. One of the characteristics of underdeveloped societies is in fact that the libido is first and foremost the concern of a group or of the family. The feature of communities whereby a man who dreams that he has sexual relations with a woman other than his own must confess it in public and pay a fine in kind, or in working days to the injured husband or family, is fully described by ethnologists. We may note in passing that this proves that the so-called prehistoric societies attach great importance to the unconscious. The atmosphere of myth and magic frightens me and so takes on an undoubted reality. By terrifying me, it integrates me in the traditions and the history of my district or of my tribe, and at the same time it reassures me, it gives me a status, as it were an identification paper. In underdeveloped countries, the occult sphere is a sphere belonging to the community, which is entirely under magical jurisdiction. By entangling myself in this inextricable network, where actions are repeated with crystalline inevitability, I find the everlasting world which belongs to me, and the perenniality which is thereby affirmed of the world belonging to us. Believe me, the zombies are more terrifying than the settlers. And in consequence, the problem is no longer that of keeping oneself right with the colonial world and its barbed wire entanglements, but of considering three times before urinating, spitting, or going out into the night. The supernatural magical powers reveal themselves as essentially personal. The settlers' powers are infinitely shrunken, stamped with their alien origin. We no longer really need to fight against them, since what counts is the frightening enemy created by myths. We perceive that all is settled by a permanent confrontation on the phantasmic plane. It has always happened in the struggle for freedom that such a people, formerly lost in an imaginary maze, a prey to unspeakable terrors yet happy to lose themselves in a dreamlike torment, such a people becomes unhinged, reorganizes itself, and in blood and tears gives birth to very real and immediate action. Feeding the Mujahideens Footnote 5. Posting sentinels, coming to the help of families which lack the bare necessities, or taking the place of a husband who has been killed or imprisoned. Such are the concrete tasks to which the people is called during the struggle for freedom. In the colonial world, the emotional sensitivity of the native is kept on the surface of his skin like an open sore which flinches from the caustic agent, and the psyche shrinks back obliterates itself, and finds outlet in muscular demonstrations which have caused certain very wise men to say that the native is a hysterical type. 
This sensitive emotionalism, watched by invisible keepers, who are, however, in unbroken contact with the core of the personality, will find its fulfillment through eroticism in the driving forces behind the crisis dissolution. On another level, we see the native's emotional sensibility exhausting itself in dances which are more or less ecstatic. This is why any study of the colonial world should take into consideration the phenomena of the dance and of possession. The native's relaxation takes precisely the form of a muscular orgy, in which the most acute aggressivity and the most impelling violence are canalized, transformed, and conjured away. The circle of the dance is a permissive circle. It protects and permits. At certain times, on certain days, men and women come together at a given place, and there, under the solemn eye of the tribe, fling themselves into a seemingly unorganized pantomime, which is in reality extremely systematic, in which by various means, shakes of the head, bending of the spinal column, throwing of the whole body backward, may be deciphered as in an open book the huge effort of a community to exercise itself, to liberate itself, to explain itself. There are no limits inside the circle. The hillock up which you have toiled, as if to be nearer to the moon, the riverbank down which you slip, as if to show the connection between the dance and ablutions, cleansing and purification. These are sacred places. There are no limits, for in reality your purpose in coming together is to allow the accumulated libido, the hampered aggressivity, to dissolve as in a volcanic eruption. Symbolic killings, fantastic rides, imaginary mass murders, all must be brought out. The evil humors are undammed, and flow away with a din, as of molten lava. One step further and you are completely possessed. In fact, these are actually organized seances of possession and exorcism. They include vampirism, possession by jinns, by zombies, and by Legva, the famous god of the voodoo. This disintegrating of the personality, this splitting and dissolution, all this fulfills a primordial function in the organism of the colonial world. When they set out, the men and women were impatient, stamping their feet in a state of nervous excitement. When they return, peace has been restored to the village. It is once more calm and unmoved. During the struggle for freedom, a marked alienation from these practices is observed. The native's back is to the wall, the knife is at his throat, or more precisely, the electrode at his genitals. He will have no more call for his fancies. After centuries of unreality, after having wallowed in the most outlandish phantoms, at long last the native, gun in hand, stands face to face with the only forces which contend for his life, the forces of colonialism. And the youth of a colonized country, growing up in an atmosphere of shot and fire, may well make a mock of, and does not hesitate to pour scorn upon, the zombies of his ancestors the horses with two heads, the dead who rise again, and the jinns who rush into our body while you yawn. The native discovers reality and transforms it into the pattern of his customs, into the practice of violence, and into his plan for freedom. We have seen that this same violence, though kept very much on the surface all throughout the colonial period, yet turns in the void. We have also seen that it is canalized by the emotional outlets of dance and possession by spirits. We have seen how it is exhausted 
in fratricidal combats. Now the problem is to lay hold of this violence, which is changing direction. When formerly it was appeased by myths and exercised its talents in finding fresh ways of committing mass suicide, now new conditions will make possible a completely new line of action. And that concludes our reading for this week. Next week we'll continue on with this chapter. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts there about video games, movies, anime, books, and our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.